1: Y'all do know, if you listen to this podcast, that you get many different topics. You get to span a wide range. And some of it is news you can use, that you can apply, and some of it is getting to know people, really getting to understand where they come from and what makes them the way they are. And um, in this episode, we cover such a wide range of things that we've done something we've never done before. We've broken out a bonus episode. Because if you just want the straight-up business knowledge from this woman who's very knowledgeable, you can clue into the bonus episode in which she gives you very practical, actionable tips on using LinkedIn. So it's a straight-up, you know, practical business application. Um, if you want to get to know her and the richness of her experience in a, the nonprofit world, the the big corporate world, how she navigated her own great resignation and is just better than ever Then listen to this episode, the full episode, which um, is about, you know, 40 minutes. Um, but we start with her in Northwest Ohio and, you know, go through cars and you know, just how she landed in the South. And you see, you know, in retrospect, particularly if you're earlier in your career, how we weave, you know, spend 20 years in a place or 30 years in a place. And it doesn't mean you're stuck there. It can constantly reinvent herself. Kristen Winkle Beck.
2: I have the utmost respect for people who've done this for decades and decades because it's not for the faint of heart
0: this is in her words a podcast from manlisting.com featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words in her words a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard
1: hey there ho there and welcome to in her words the podcast boy i so enjoyed this conversation we sat for three hours and you, you don't get to hear but about a half hour of it. And a lot of it, I was just picking this woman's brain very selfishly uh, to, to understand uh, when to, you know, that, that dreaded word networking, I'm not talking about social networking, I'm talking about standing around pretending to be interested, uh, when it's worth it, when it's authentic, and when it's just, you know, go home. You know, kick back, put on your jammies, watch Netflix. <laughs> you don't have to stand there at the cocktail party. So she's an expert at that. And you see really how she was formed just as a girl to become this sort of amateur psychologist who worked in the big corporate world, managing these huge teams. And now in the nonprofit world, Very, very different environment. And we go into the weeds, we go, we get granular. We get right down to the nitty gritty. Kristen Winkle Beck. Where were you born?
2: I was born in a small college town called Bluffton, Ohio. It just happened to be where my mom's obstetrician was because that's not my hometown, but there are no hospitals within 30 minutes of my hometown. I'm the oldest of two girls Mm -hmm.
1: and was your dad like I want a boy or was he like oh I love girls
2: I think he would have like I think my mom actually when we were kids I'm a child of the 80s and I think she actually bought My dad, as a joke, when the Cabbage Patch Kids came out, I think she actually bought him twin boy Cabbage Patch Kids as a joke because she had always joked, twins do run in our family. We don't have any in our immediate family, but there are lots of twins in our family, and so I think he was sort of secretly hoping for twin boys. Sadly, he got two girls two and a half years apart.
1: And did you grow up in this area? I did. I did. What portion of Ohio
2: is? Northwest Ohio. It's a small town called Continental, less than 1,000 people. Yeah. Small rural farming village. I worked at W T O L. You were probably in you our... are absolutely in our viewing area to this day. My my entire family is still there.
1: Okay. Uh, do you remember Jeff Heights? Yes,
2: best of the class. And Charlie Umpenhauer. A hundred percent on weather. I shook Jeff Heights' hand because I was the valedictorian of my class. And they, W2OL, had a tradition every spring. They would bring the valedictorians from all the high schools together, and they would put us on campus at the University of Toledo or somewhere, and they would parade us around in our caps and gowns, and they would, it was the whole best of the class this year.
1: How many people graduated from your...
2: I had a big class, 57, in a public school. So my parents were high school sweethearts. And I think there were somewhere between 40 and 44. My sister graduated three years behind me and there were low forties for her. Um, Very tiny, tiny public, public high school. In fact, the state department of education used to study our county because there's less than 25,000 people in Putnam County, Ohio, but there are nine high schools. They refuse to consolidate. And the families and the people that live there pay handsomely in taxes because their identities are wrapped up in the towns and in the school. So I often tell people, the way I describe my town is if you've seen the movie Hoosiers, Mm -hmm. just pick it up and move it across into the Ohio border. I think people are generally extremely generous and extremely warm and want to get to know you. I think when there's a resistance to that, Then there becomes a distrust. I think there's generally a assumed positive intent. I also do believe there is an element of self-sufficiency. No one's going to rescue you. No one's going to wait for you. And they take care of their own. You know, there's wonderful stories, and I have wonderful memories. And families come around other families whenever there's a crisis. You know, that's Tornado Alley, right? So people have had their homes blown to smithereens. You know, wedding pictures that are found 45 miles away. And the community just comes around people when they're in crisis, whether that's a health crisis, uh, a, you know, a natural disaster, flooding, what have you. And I think that's the piece that having lived in the South now for over 25 years and, and largely in bigger cities, I miss that. I mean, that's the piece that it will always be home and there will always be community. And that if you're in need, there's somebody there to help you. And we don't, all, I don't always experience that level of intense community and support in a bigger city.
1: Right. So what did your mother and father do to put bread on the table?
2: So I could have been a third generation car saleswoman. What, uh, my, what brand? My grandfather started his dealership. I believe he bought it from an existing businessman in town. He and a business partner, I think it was a Chrysler dealership. At some point in the... And he bought it in 1960. It's still in our family today. h Motor Sales in Continental, Ohio. It's being run by my uncle, my dad's brother. Um, he and a business partner. And at some point, they changed brands to be General Motors. And I don't know exactly. I think that was before I was born. So um, sometime in the early 70s, he changed affiliation from AMC and... Jeep and Chrysler to the General Motors brand, and today it's it's a GM, you know Chevrolet, GMC, Cadillac dealership. So, what kind of car do you drive? They're probably going to kick me out of this family, Stuart. <laughs> um, right now, I drive a Honda Pilot. My husband drives a Cadillac. Well, he drives General Motors. He does. And I had a long conversation about it and I test drove many GM products. It was very, it was actually the first time in my whole life. And I, I bought this car five years ago and it was a real emotional thing for me. My dad is actually working for an independent dealer and does a lot of wholesale and truck stuff. And he goes to auctions in Toledo and Detroit where there's plentiful supplies of cars and, you know, got me a great deal, but I tried to find a general motors product and, you know, in the car business, like fashion and anything else, they discontinue the body style, they make changes, they update, and I was looking for very specific midsize, boxy type of SUV. I have a little bit of a furniture addiction. I like to thrift and antique and go to yard sales and tag sales and consignment stores. So I was looking for function, and so I asked my dad, point blank, are you are you going to kick me out of the family because I think I want a Honda Pilot? And he said? And he said, if that's what you want, I'll find you the best deal I can find you. And he did.
1: Uh, what's the secret? How does he find you the best deal he can find you?
2: I think...
1: Dealer to dealer. They- yeah,
2: he, this particular vehicle he got at auction. Oh, okay. So he goes to the auctions regularly and sources things, and he's been doing that. I remember going to my first auction, car auction with him, when I was probably seven or eight. He's been you- doing this. Since he, before he graduated high school, he worked in the dealership. Um, my mom likes to tell stories about when he would pick her up, he would go wash his car, pick her up, take her on a date, take her home, and go back and wash his car. <laughs> so what he kind is, of car did he have? It was a, I believe it was a 69 Chevelle.
1: You've seen a picture of that? That's
2: a muscle car. Right? No, but he talks about it a lot. Or he did, my mom and he, they have talked about it, you know, and they're not together anymore, but they. Do you know the so color? T- I think it was blue, but I don't know for sure about that. I just know that it was, I mean, he graduated from high school in 1970 and he had a 69 Chevelle. He worked part-time for his father's car dealership and he went and poured iron overnight. And so he worked in the factory, at the, the GM factory. And so he told, I remember I was in elementary school when we went through the tour and he talked about, and I mean, you haven't seen it until you've seen hot molten iron being poured into these engine blocks and it was the primary place where they poured engine blocks for, for General Motors. And it's still in place today. I mean, at the height, I don't know how many tens of thousands of employees they had, but it really um, is a cornerstone of this community because we're sort of, my hometown is sort of square in between Defiance and Lima. So there's a big Ford plant in Lima, Ohio, and then the General Motors foundry was in Defiance and it's still operational today. I have another uncle and a number of my classmates from high school that and my sister's classmates and, People that live in our community—they farm by day and work in the factory at night. So the part of Ohio that I grew up in has a very deep German heritage. Lots of German Catholic families settled in this corner of Northwest Ohio, and to the to that end, German was the only foreign language taught in my high school. Not super applicable in today's <laughs> world, but it at the time, depends on the industry you're in. There's some industries. Yes. But at the time, that was the only foreign language option, and so I was fascinated. Having you know studied German, and then when I went to college, I took a semester and, and you went to Austria. I want to work Austria. for BMW. I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I want to go into the car business, but I remember when they built that plant and when they brought it, you know, stateside, and and it was here in the Carolinas, which was just very cool. And I remember thinking that's just awesome that it's it's here and. Did a lot of good things for for South Carolina and for Greenville Spartanburg so in particular. How old were you when you got
1: your first car?
2: Well, I wasn't 16. I was I was younger than 16 because I remember him walking me out onto the lot going, pick one.
1: Um, you got to pick a new one?
2: Well, so here's the little story about being a car dealer's daughter. It, it's never really yours, right? So you essentially drive <laughs> you a, a demo, demo right? Yeah. You drive a demo. And so, there was discussion. My mom says the discussion was my dad had wanted to give me a brand spanking new teal because that was the new color in the early 90s, 1991 Corvette. And my mother was like, Ooh. absolutely not. <laughs> she will wrap it around a tree. <laughs> um, mostly, wear. I don't, I just, I didn't, ha- I still to this day don't have the affinity to the Corvette. Yeah. Um Despite the fact that that's what my mother drove until I was probably ten years old, yeah, and so I actually chose um, a 1986 SS Monte Carlo because I could fit my whole volleyball team in it with me, and I wanted <laughs> it to have t tops, and it had you know a 350, and it was fast and it was fun, and that was my first car. But I think I only had it. In fact, by the time in Ohio. You didn't get your permit even until you were 16. You had to turn 16 before they would even get your permit. So by the time I picked my car and I would drive myself to my best friend's house and she would drive me to school in my car because I wasn't old enough. I didn't have my own license yet to drive myself to school. By the time I took my driver's test, I had been onto my second or third car because he had sold it. And I would get, I would get, would be sitting in class and they would come over the, you know, intercom. Christy Winkle, please report to the office and bring your car keys. And they'd be like, somebody wants to test drive your car. Okay.
1: Multiples of my kids took two and three times to pass the DMV test. How many times did it take? Only
2: one because I've been driving since I was eight. Right. So my dad taught us to drive cars early. My grandfather had living out. In northwest ohio plentiful farmland my grandfather had a 1968 cessna airplane and he had a big grass landing strip and so that's where everybody learned to drive they would take you in a car out to the landing strip there was nothing you were going to hit it was a big you know mile-long field of grass and we grew up driving go-karts and mini bikes and you know the accoutrements of all the little motorized things but I remember getting behind the wheel of a car when I was 8 or 9 years old. And then, I think selfishly, my dad was like, "I'm going to teach these girls how to park cars" because when he would want to rearrange the lot, that was like a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon event as we would just spend time moving cars around. So, it was really more of a formality when I took my driver's test, but I passed it the first time.
1: Did you ever ding one of those cars? I whatever? don't
2: think I don't really remember ever doing that. No. I mean, we he was always right there with us. You know, but it was more like, I'm going to pull this car out. You're going to pull this one in. And there was a lot of movement around. And so he just knew that if he could get us to do it with him, it would go faster.
1: Did you fly with your grandfather in that Cessna? Yeah, often. Where would you fly to? We would fly
2: to the Bluffton Airport for breakfast. (laughs) So Bluffton also had a small little airport. And that's where my grandfather was meticulous. He was meticulous about the way he kept his cars. He was meticulous the way he kept his airplane. In fact, the day that he died... Um, and when we sadly had to sell the airplane, you could open the door and never spend a night outside. He built a hangar for it. And when you open the door to that Cessna, it still had the new plane smell. Oh my word. So I'm the oldest of seven grandchildren on the Winkle side of the family. And all of us have memories of flying for breakfast with grandpa to get, uh, he would go and get his airplane service, you know, check the fluid levels just like you do with your car. And what he would do is he would always schedule it as a first morning appointment, and he would gather up a grandkid or two or four or however many he wanted to take with him, and we would fly to breakfast. And your
1: parents were not in the least nervous about you going with him?
2: No. My dad flew too, so um, no.
1: Did you ever want to fly?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess. I think...
1: I mean, you could really easily.
2: Yeah, Yeah. and I, you know, it's really funny because some people have these really distinct, like, vivid, vivid memories of their first time on an airplane. Mm -hmm. And I don't really remember life with, I can't remember that because it probably happened before I was, like, I just don't, I don't remember a time where we weren't flying. So not too far from Michigan International Speedway.
1: Oh, my word. Now, do you have a driver? Do Do you have somebody that you really liked? Would you go out to like the IROC races?
2: So that's kind of NASCAR plays a story in how I got to the South. Okay. So it, being in the car business, yeah. my dad, we lived very close. Our family had this cottage for a long time, five minutes away from Michigan International Speedway in Jackson, Michigan. And one of his saleswomen they camped every year when the race would come to town in Michigan the twi- two times a year. And there was a really poor driver, but he was an old school driver, J.D. McDuffie mm-hmm. from Sanford, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And he was so bootstrapped in his team that he would recruit his crew members at every different... He only had a select group that he traveled with. And then he would recruit local people to serve on his pit crew. And so one of the gentlemen who was his gas catcher, his wife worked for my dad and came in and asked if my dad would consider buying him a set of tires. As the story goes, my dad bought the team. Oh my word. And so we set off on owning a NASCAR team in the mid 80s and I traveled around Charlotte and at the age of 12 years old, I told everyone I knew I was gonna go to college in North Carolina and I was gonna live in Charlotte.
1: Because what was the attraction?
2: I loved everything about life in the South. I loved the people. I love the hospitality. I love the energy. I love the weather. Yeah, a lot warmer. I loved everything about it. And I just knew there was just a knowing deep in my heart. Now, I, I got my college wrong at the age of 12. Uh-huh. But I just, there was something that I just knew, like, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to do this. And I'm going to live in Charlotte.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children.
1: What did you gravitate toward? What kind of classes?
2: I think I've always been a student of people. And so I wasn't really sure what that was gonna look like, whether it was gonna be human resources or marketing, or I I didn't have a clarity about that. I majored in psychology Mm -hmm. at Wake Forest, not at Chapel Hill where I told everyone I was gonna go.
1: What'd you wanna be when you grew up?
2: When I was young, I wanted to be a teacher. As I got older, I wanted to be a doctor until I set foot on Wake Forest campus and got the first C in my whole life in college chemistry. I was like, hmm, maybe need to go to a backup plan.
1: Yeah. And so, what was the backup plan?
2: The backup plan was to major in psychology. And I remember the call very distinctly. So, I called my mom and told her that I was going to major, I was changing my major from pre med to psychology. And I remember her saying something like, Well, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> and I said to her, I'm going to be the executive director of a nonprofit.
1: Where did that come from?
2: I don't know because I didn't know anybody that was an executive director of nonprofit. I had no idea. I had no idea where that came from. The funnier part of that story is as I progressed in my, you know, through college and, and did pretty well, I pivoted and decided to go into business and had an accidental 20 year career in large financial institutions. And then in 2017 had my own great resignation. And in 2019 became the executive director. Of a nonprofit here in Charlotte.
1: So it just took you a little while?
2: It just took me a little while. <laughs> and I really don't know. I did not know an executive director of a nonprofit. I don't even know where that came from.
1: And did you know what it involved?
2: No. No. So- Other than I knew that it was doing good and I knew it was a leadership role and I knew there was probably some administrative components to it, which have always just sort of been my natural. I'm an organizer by nature. Well, I'll cut
1: straight to it because you and I have talked about this and from 32 years of investigative reporting. Um, one of the challenges of nonprofits, and I would include churches in this and mm-hmm. most nonprofits, especially small ones, is they know the price of everything and the value of nothing.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: they're always, so if you can buy an ink pen, that will last you five years, but it costs five dollars. They'll buy twelve ink pens that last you, you know, six months. Uh, they won't. They won't. They won't. They won't pay for value um, because they feel as though they're under constant scrutiny.
2: Yeah, I think. It's been an eye-opening experience for me the last three years being making a pivot into the nonprofit sector six months, or not even six months, four and a half months before the pandemic happened after a 20-year career. So I do believe that I was chosen because I was coming in with a business acumen, and I didn't have some of the maybe stereotypical or historical context of leading a nonprofit. I think some of that, interestingly enough though, Stewart in my experience and just talking to other nonprofit leaders. And I don't, I can't say that it's really my experience at my nonprofit, other than to say that in some ways the donors have conditioned our nonprofit leaders to behave that way. Right. So it's, it's a bigger, as I've spent the last three years and you know, most of which have been coming through a global pandemic, And I've immersed myself in becoming a student of philanthropy and fundraising and how to be as efficient as possible because you just don't have a choice. There is an element of we have set a different set of standards for a nonprofit organization than we would set for an emerging or an early stage entrepreneurial venture and where it is societally acceptable that as a new business owner, you may not make money for a while or it may take you some time, or you're going to have to spend more than you're bringing in to gain a certain market presence or brand awareness or scalability, that same grace is not available in the nonprofit community. You, you cannot operate at a deficit. Number one, the financial instruments to start a business versus starting a nonprofit, you don't have access to the same kind of financial instruments, the loans, the, the types of things that help entrepreneurs start businesses unless
1: you got a sugar daddy. If you got a sugar daddy or sugar mama, maybe, um, well, what I'm thinking about are churches. Like if you have one big, you know, philanthropist or donor, yeah, yeah. they, they could say, well, this is what I want and I'm paying for it. So mm-hmm. what do you care? Yeah. You know, and, that's your-
2: a fair point. I think oh, I deal mostly we support the nonprofit that I lead supports grassroots and emerging nonprofits that are really tackling some of the most challenging community issues that we have. And so I'm I'm looking at it from the standpoint of everyone's like, "Well, go get a grant." But even institutional funders, whether that's a corporation or well-established foundations, they're not going to make a bet or place a bet generally speaking of very significant funding for an organization that is new or is operating at a smaller budget. And that's where you know the organization like I lead, Social Venture Partners Charlotte, we are coming alongside those dollars, not only with funding, but we're coming alongside it with our time, our business expertise, our talent, our social capital, and our professional and personal networks to help bolster, just like venture capitalists do when they make an investment in a business, they come alongside that money to try to help that organization get up and accelerate their growth and their impact. We do the same thing in the nonprofit sector. And I just don't see most organizations that get started get started because somebody sees a need that is not being filled. And they have such a heart and passion for it that they try to fill it, regardless of whether they've given any thought to, do they have the capital, do they have this business skills or the administrative skills or the people around them to make that a reality.
1: The bitter southerner funded the long form journalism by selling the swag first.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Brilliant. Yeah. And they're sustaining it. hundred percent. Growing.
2: We absolutely see a very big trend and it's one of the things where it makes sense to have some type of fee for service or some earned revenue income that will always, we will always encourage that. And there are going to be organizations that their model fits and they're able to do that. It's going to be a little harder to do that if you're a food pantry or, you know, I was visiting a foster organization with foster families, not every foster family or kinship family, you know, a family member that takes in an extended family member suddenly um, that are going to be able to pay for those services. So some, and where it makes sense, absolutely. You know, I think we do... Our approach to nonprofits is much that it's how can we help them get their business foundation under them to be sustainable for the long term, mm-hmm. and that includes a robust revenue generating strategy. And notice I didn't say a fundraising strategy; I said a revenue generating strategy. Well, the, so I have the utmost uh, respect for people who've done this for decades and decades because it's not for the faint of heart, and it's a challenge. And I I do think that we are there are some organizations out there. It's called the Trust-Based Philanthropy Project, which is really talking about sharing of power. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my dad also used to talk about the golden rule, he who has the gold rules. Right. And so there's this element of, of funders. And I think the tides are slowly starting to shift, you know, where it's not making these organizations that are so thinly staffed and resourced to begin with, not making them jump through hoops and and a bunch of extra applications or due diligence and taking some of that burden as the funder on yourself, like doing some of that research, being transparent about the criteria that you're looking for. One of the things I'm really proud about is we make ourselves accessible at social venture partners. We make ourselves accessible to the people that are applying. Here are our criteria. This is what we're looking for. Here's who's eligible to apply. And if they have questions about whether or not they're eligible to apply, come ask us. Like, I will be very honest with you because I don't want organizations... Essentially what happens is you get someone who spends a week or two weeks on a really long grant application and then if you don't get funded, that was unpaid work. So I now took you out and away from the mission that you were working on into something that was...
1: Waste of your time.
2: Basically, It's opportunity cost. Yeah, And, and, and in an organization that is so small and their staff is already stretched thin and their mission may be incredibly physically or emotionally draining. The last thing you want to do is waste that precious person's time or the organization's capacity. And that's one of the things that I really in my short time in the nonprofit sector, I've just really have appreciated and tried to walk the talk. And I am in a unique place because I'm both a nonprofit fundraiser because I'm raising the money that we turn around and grant back out. So I find myself at an interesting intersection of understanding what it's like to bring in revenue for the organization, but also then being the steward of helping our partners to make our grant making decisions. Um, for monies that are going back out to other nonprofits.
1: But right. tell the truth, what's something that coming out of these huge financial institutions that you go into this world and you just beat your head against the wall because you're like, you guys, think big, think bigger, stop thinking so small, think, dream, think about something. Yeah, big. I think
2: the one thing I'm really surprised about is, and I don't really see this, unfortunate because I have a really strong board, but sometimes people have all this lived experience in the business world and then somehow they get into a nonprofit boardroom and it's like they leave that rational business thinking behind mm-hmm. because they become, to use a term that we've talked about a lot, there's a lot of scarcity mindset. There's a lot of, there's not enough dollars to go around. And because it's almost like they're trying to steward this organization they're just becoming sometimes nonprofit boards are almost too risk averse. There's a right balance of risk and reward. And they're just, you know, a lot of times there's just not as much margin for error. And so that I see the, I see the nonprofit board members and business leaders that might be inclined in a business setting to take a chance, not willing to take the chance in the nonprofit sector. And I think it gets just, it just gets back to there aren't as many other, fallbacks, you know, unless you've been around a while and we tend to support earlier stage nonprofits that are in their first five to 10 years of existence. So they don't have the ability to go get a line of credit to help them manage their cash flow or instruments that are absolutely accessible to small business owners. Small nonprofits just don't have the same access to that type of capital. But I do think the tides are changing and I do think that the pandemic really helped our society to see these people that are, their services are more in demand than ever because conditions warranted such, you think about a food pantry or something where all of a sudden, if you worked in hospitality, you had no job, you had nowhere to go, you know, and people who felt like they had very steady income all of a sudden were without it. And so I think it was during that time that funders really stepped in and said, we we're going we're gonna to fund you whether or not you can do the project, whether or not you can, we're going to take the funds that maybe were previously restricted to some specific use and we're going to remove the restriction. You can use it for rent. You can use it to pay people. All those things that were needed and critical. I hope that sticks around because most organizations, especially small ones, are so grateful for the support, they wouldn't dream of misusing your funds. When I went through, Wake Forest University has a nonprofit program that I went through several years ago before I left corporate America, as I was starting to get the inclination that I might want to pursue employment in the sector. And they used the example of Newman's own salad dressing, right? Mm -hmm. He, Paul Newman, had all these family recipes of all these wonderful salad dressings and condiments and marinades and all these things, and he was doing it with the sole intention of giving 100% of the profits back. But the reality of it is, is those were family assets. And when you create a nonprofit, it's a publicly owned entity. So whatever assets are inside the nonprofit. That becomes public property, and he didn't want to give up the rights to those assets. So what he did was he created a social enterprise, 100% of the dollars that they made went into the Newman Foundation, which then they gifted out, but he didn't create a nonprofit. He created a for-profit entity and then turned over 100% of the profits to his foundation, which then distributed into the communities that he ultimately wanted to do. So I think you have to really ask yourself, like, where can you do the most good? Mm-hmm. And what is the motivation? And is this something that you see outliving yourself? Because if the answer is yes, then maybe a nonprofit's the way to go because ultimately a nonprofit should outlive its founder, should live on in perpetuity as a publicly owned entity versus a family business that you pass down generation over generation.
1: But many's the story of the nonprofit. They could say... If the founder, he's spinning in his grave, he's 100%. spinning in his grave. We've lost. So if you think you're going to control yes. the dollars and the mission beyond your, then you better lock it in, all the bylaws and everything, because they drift. The mission creep and the drift is legendary, and I see it all the time. Yeah, yeah. And they can even be, like, reformed. I've witnessed that, yeah, too.
2: Yeah, for sure. But I think that you know, there's some, there is a little bit of, glamorization and.
1: Sure, it's an expensive tombstone. Yeah, you know, it it think...
2: can be very much so, and I think the question always comes back to what's the purpose, and do you have vision beyond your vision, and are you surrounding yourself with people, that can take you farther than you can go alone, and will challenge you, and will help you to bring the vision to light so that it's not really, I think those successful nonprofits are the ones that create a vision bigger than its founder. I mean, we, there's all, there's countless stories. I mean, they even call it founder syndrome, right? when the founder really does inhibit the progress of the organization because they had a, they had a vision when they started it and then the world changed or the circumstances changed or they started to grow and the needs changed. And so, you know, but those organizations that transcend and, and I guess that's really the question is like, is this your pet project or is this something you really want to set free in the world to do good?
1: Well, this is where you, you can tell really, really quickly, is this about your name Mm -hmm. or is this about getting the most done on this such and such an issue, rescuing puppies or whatever it is? Yep. That, because... Uh, the people you're talking to and with and for and all that are the estate planners Mm -hmm. because that's where people have these hard conversations of I want to save puppies. Okay, let's talk about the most bang for the buck in saving puppies or do you just want the Stuart Watson puppy saving fund Mm -hmm. because you want Stuart Watson's name out there years after I'm dead. Um, So it happens all, but these are the conversations that happen. For sure. And they're like, there's not a wrong answer. If you want Stuart Watson's name to go on, we're going to set up one kind of instrument. Mm-hmm. And if you want to save the most puppies, we're going to we're going to set up something else. Yeah. And you're you're getting hip to all this.
2: I'm learning.
1: Does it make you more hopeful or more cynical about people?
2: <laughs> Depends on the day. I'm going to be really honest. You know, working in a small organization like. I do. There's only two staff members. And so we couldn't do the wonderful work we do. In fact, most of the impact that we have is because of the generosity of our partners, which are donor volunteers. And they're the ones that come alongside the work. They're the ones that actually give their business acumen, their intelligence, their business and professional personal contacts. They have the skills. They're the lawyers, the bankers, the teachers, the certified fundraisers. You know, They're the ones that are really accomplishing the work. But it's hard, you know, it is it is some of the hardest and holiest work I've ever done. And I think largely the broad society in the United States doesn't really understand how nonprofits work. And you get these bad actors, that the embezzlement schemes or the misappropriation. And those are generally really, really, really rare. But that sets the tone for the entire country. And then people start, you know, asking things that they would never ask of a small business or something else. And they expect these organizations to turn water into wine or they expect non- because you're a professional in the nonprofit sector, you don't have a mortgage. You don't have to send kids to college. You don't have to put food on your table. You're not dealing with a rising cost of inflation like every other person in the country. And so we get, you know, we get these weird attitudes and, my husband will tell you, we get in a circle of friends and somebody's like, I want to know how many cents on the dollar goes to the person. And I'm, and I get on my soap docs and he's like, buckle up boys. Like you're <laughs> about to get a lesson. Cause it's just, it's something I'm really passionate about because I think the best advice I can offer is get to know the leaders of the nonprofit you want to support. Then decide whether you want to hamstring them with a restriction on your gift. Cause if you get to know them, and you get to see their work, you will trust them to do the right thing with the dollars that you give to them, and you will trust that they are going to find miraculous ways to multiply those gifts into impacts you can't imagine. But it's a whole lot easier when you've got the right number of staff to be able to execute the programming, that they're paid a livable wage and with livable benefits, where they don't have to worry about their own families in addition to the families that they're supporting through the nonprofit work.
1: If we get struck by lightning today, and the only thing that survives is this little piece of digital audio, what is your legacy?
2: I knew you were gonna ask me this question. I want to be known as someone who is a generous person, who gave of her time, her God-given talents, and her resources to the best degree that she could. That also includes not being stingy with compliments or encouragement that cost nothing. I'd also like to be remembered as somebody who is never afraid to try something new or go after something really big. Because I've always been told and I've always felt this way is you can always go home. And so if you sit at home and wish and wonder, but you never take the leap, you never go after the dream, you'll just always wonder what if. And I don't want to be known as a person who wondered, what if?
1: Thank you for all you've given me, and to the nonprofit world, and to those big corporations, and to the people around you. I appreciate you, Kristen Winklebeck.
2: It's been my honor. Absolute pleasure. I could do this for hours with you. You're a gifted, gifted interviewer, and I'm humbled to have been here today with you.
1: I have to tell you a little secret. I gave Kristen Winkelbeck my copy of a Harvard Business Review, which I vastly overpaid for. I paid 20 bucks for it at the airport when we flew out to Texas. And she's looking through it. And we're having lunch tomorrow. And she's going to tell me what she thinks really resonated with her about the whole networking thing. If you want to hear about LinkedIn in particular, go to the bonus episode. It's We're going to drop it right after this. And she really does have very actionable, practical advice for that. Kristen Winklebeck, I just so thoroughly enjoyed this and so appreciate all your time and expertise. Thanks for sharing with us.
0: In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp-Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins & Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women.
1: And thank all of you for joining us and thank you for all your support, however you've given it over all these years. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.